0: I think that it's increasingly important for the buyers of these policies to understand what's in their policies. And I think it's increasingly difficult for them to do so. Some of the onus to me is on clear policies, clear wording and clear communication. Um, So much of the discussion and so much of the marketing you see, is just like, this is good to have. And it's, you know, it'll protect you and you'll be okay, but it, it doesn't really get into the nitty gritty. Do you want to hear about
1: the latest developments in the cyber market and learn best practices and thought leadership from cyber insurance and security experts? We talk all things cyber insurance industry, international growth, cyber claims, and more. Welcome to the Cyber Insurance Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Hess. Stay tuned. Good morning and uh, good afternoon. Good midday, I guess, depending on depending on where you're at and when you're listening. Um, Peter Halpern, thanks for uh, coming on the show thanks for having me cool all right well i like to to sort of kick things off with uh just getting a bit of introduction uh about yourself and then just kind of kind of go through different things about yourself and your practice so why don't you uh, start out by telling us about yourself
0: Uh, i'm a lawyer at at passage here in new york Um, i specialize in insurance coverage which typically involves advising or representing clients in disputes with their insurers um, and I also provide advice. And so I help clients when they're trying to purchase policies or think about risk management, um, often in the cyber realm in particular.
1: Okay, cool. Um, well, so you're, you've talked a bit about your yourself and, and, and kind of your practice. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, maybe just kind of getting into a little bit, is there any particular you know geographic focus sector focus size of clients like what do you what do you kind of focus on
0: yeah i, I would say my practice is truly global in nature i've, I've had cases and clients um, all over the world i've had disputes all over the world uh, including in in sunny although generally foggy london where you're where you're from mm. um size of clients they tend to be large corporations some mid-sized companies but mostly large corporations um and I wouldn't say I'd say we're we're, we're sector agnostic, but um, as you can imagine, in this space, we tend to have a lot of disputes uh, involving financial services, professional services, um, healthcare, kind of the, the some of the usual suspects you might think. Okay. Take.
1: So it's kind of interesting. Do you think is it because those are the big buyers of cyber insurance, or do you think there's more? Are there particular sectors that are more likely to have ch- to challenge a claim?
0: I don't think it's more likely to challenge a claim per se. I think it's just that these are sectors that tend to have a lot of claims, okay. and so just by law of numbers, maybe that's why we're seeing more more disputes there. Um, I think healthcare in particular; those can be very high dollar very quickly because you know a ransomware attack can be so disruptive to the operations of a, of a healthcare system. Um, but you know you, you you see it all over, and I would also say that uh, I caveat everything I say with. You know, folks. Other than on the advice side, if they're coming to me with a dispute, um, you know, it's a dispute. So no, it's not like ICO. Oh, One hundred, you know, eighty percent of the time, everyone's happy, and twenty percent they're not. If they're only unhappy twenty yeah. percent, that's mostly what I see.
1: Okay, interesting. So, what would you say um, your uh, your team or your company strength in cyber is then?
0: I think it's experience. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of claims coming from a lot of different angles. Um, I've been focused in this area for quite some time. And also, I think because I handle the advice side, it also gives me a lot of insight into that relationship between claims and underwriting, which both helps us in you know understanding perhaps where the underwriters are coming from and being able to negotiate with them if necessary. And then on the other hand, when you're getting a new policy, you know making sure that we can try to get clients the best policy for their particular risk okay. cool.
1: all right. well thanks for that. um so let me let me jump into you know some of the thought leadership questions get your point of view on some of these things. I think um it's it's been interesting, you know, obviously myself coming from more of a, a services background, you know, I'm kind of watching the industry move more and more toward really kind of active engagement with insureds um you know, really a service focused model. uh and you're it's kind of at least, when I look at a lot of the marketing, it's moved away from a lot of focus on what the policy actually covers. Uh, do you think have we kind of reached a point where the the policy is really easy for people to understand? Is is that kind of what's happening, so they don't need to pay much attention to the the coverage? Or, you know, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I I, I take it the other way, which is I think that it's increasingly important for the buyers of these policies to understand what's in their policies. And I think it's increasingly difficult for them to do so. And so, um, you know, to me, some of the onus, and we kind of talked about this in our prep, but some of the onus to me is on clear policies, clear wording, and clear communication. Um, so much of the discussion and so much of the marketing you see is just like, this is good to have and it's, you know, yeah. it'll protect you and you'll be okay, but it, it doesn't really get into the nitty gritty. And if you get into the nitty gritty and, you know, you've got, Seventy percent co-insurance and a really high retention, and then a really low sublimit. You know, all of the bells and whistles are nice, but it's not at the end of the day giving you the financial comfort that you thought you'd be achieving through the market.
1: Yeah, it's um, it it is interesting. I think you're 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 right that sort of the, the moving away from that focus, you know, does make it harder to understand what you're buying. Um, you know, you don't. I I feel like I used to see a lot more. Like checks, like, you know, this is covered, this is covered, this is covered, you know, okay. And then here's some scenarios that match that. And okay, I'm not saying you don't see that, but I I just feel like it's a lot less of a focus from my perspective at least than it was maybe five years ago, where I used to see a lot of that, like coverage evaluations, like here's what you're getting, here's the coverage you're getting, here's how it works. Um so and it's, some of
0: that um, is because it's it's really amorphous and you know you'd have to put so many asterisks after the we cover this asterisk. Hmm. Well maybe if it's not systemic, but you know, it's limited to a certain region and so on and so forth, it makes it harder, I think, to do that kind of that kind of simple marketing. Um and the systemic yeah. risk is something that we've talked a lot about too, right? It seems that yeah, have been beating the drum for the idea that they cannot cover systemic risk. uh, Whereas at the same time, that's probably the scenario where their clients are going to need help the most.
1: Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, it'd be interesting digging just a a little bit into that. Like, what are some of the issues you're seeing or questions that clients are having when they're, when they're kind of confronted with a systemic risk question or coverage, or, you know, this is what, um, you know, they're coming to an insurer with a with a problem. They're looking to cover, like what kinds of questions are you seeing, and where are people getting confused?
0: Ooh, that's that's a big topic. There's a lot yeah. to, there's a lot to unpack there. But I guess if I can if I can break it down a little bit, um, you know, I, I've thought a lot about the systemic risk issue, particularly in light of COVID, because I felt like there were a lot of articles and questions and things coming out, particularly vis-a-vis mm-hmm. uh, the Russian war on Ukraine. Um, about systemic risk and about, you know, broader cyber conflict and what it might look like uh, reverberating throughout the world, which made me think of a pandemic-style event. And, you know, we know from the quote-unquote pandemic insurance wars that, you know, there were thousands and thousands of lawsuits in the United States alone. Um, And in the UK, I know that those, those lawsuits are very, very active and still kind of kicking around. You had the you know, the FCA, I'm getting a little far off topic, but you have the FCA mm. test case, right? And then you had all these cases that derive therefrom. And perhaps our naive view on this side of the pond was that, you know, the test case created clarity and then folks would build on that. But my understanding from uh, practitioners over there is that um, now every single aspect of the test case is now being tested and litigated and, and so on. And yeah. so um, they're not that much you know further ahead than perhaps we thought they might be. But stepping back, the the, the point is that that's the exact scenario that you think might happen in a cyber setting, right, where there's some kind of cyber incident that reverberates throughout the world. And Mm -hmm. on the advice side, I am more and more seeing insurers putting language into policies that try to limit their exposure in the event of some kind of systemic risk. And that's where, again, I think there's going to be an expectations gap because, you know, to covid right you have a property policy it provides coverage against business interruption and you're looking around and you're saying i can't use my property my business is interrupted pay me yeah and and thousands of courts have had the opportunity to then opine on that question and the concern is you know a similar scenario in the kind of cyber pandemic context right some kind of global cyber incident and then all of a sudden People actually get to open and read their policies and endorsement number 37 is a systemic risk endorsement, which, you know, raises retentions or, you know, adds in sublimits or, you know, eviscerates coverage entirely and puts the policyholder in a position of like, I thought I bought cyber insurance for cyber incidents and now I have a cyber incident and now you're telling me it was too big, so it's not covered, too big, so I lost coverage. Um, That's a hard disconnect. And, you know- that I kind of keep coming back to, and maybe it's because I'm a, I'm an optimist, is trust and communication and really trying to set something up so that customers feel like they're getting their money's worth for what they're buying and insurers feel like they're sufficiently protected against whatever they don't want to insure. But so those communications are clear so that everyone understands what they're getting going into it. And my fear is that yeah. particularly in cyber, where you don't have ISO forms, where you don't have any kind of standardized language where you might see 10 different versions of a systemic systemic risk endorsement for me to say um yeah. you know those that trust is harder to create
1: yeah that um it's interesting i think um yeah i mean you, you kind of tie into some of the sort of war exclusion conversations and all that activity but it is a lot broader than that and i think a lot of these companies are probably less afraid of war exclusion than they would be of, you know, a wide-scale systemic attack. At least from a technical point of view, I would be more worried about it. Like, there's probably some sort of systemic things. But on the other side of that, the insurers are probably too afraid, and so you you kind of you, you have. I, I think it's not impossible. This is going to happen. I'm not. I, I wouldn't say that. But I think that there's a maybe an outsized level of fear. To sort of the systemic elements natural in in technology and natural in cyber. Um, but having both sides of it be afraid, you know, is, is sort of creating that clash, right? Because you have these, the the insured's going, well, wait a minute, I'm really scared about this. I need to cover it. You know, if I'm paying for it, I want to cover it. And then you have the insurer going, Well, this is this is too much. I don't want to cover that. That's you know, not at the prices, you know, at least that people are willing to pay. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Um but cool all right well let me um let me shift a bit i guess onto uh onto some other other topics um you know just talking about trends uh you know do you think people are are too reactive
0: i think you know there's kind of a joke where you know you used to watch c n n and and once a year there might be breaking news and now you watch and you know it's like um celebrity gets a haircut, breaking news, Mm. you know, to the point where it happens 24 times a day and you you no longer really know what breaking news means. I feel like oftentimes there's an eagerness to try to find, locate, and identify trends um, where there aren't always things that are truly, you know, breaking news. Um, You know, I've seen a few reports uh, come out from cyber insurers saying that better protected companies are less susceptible to cyber attacks. Yeah, that's Okay, we know that. Uh, you know, we don't need to you know, breaking news alert on that. So, yeah. um, I think there is a tendency to kind of overreport some of the trends, and and because of that, it does create this reactionary cycle where folks feel like they have to constantly stay on top of and address you know those those concerns. Um, but I, I think for most of my clients, they take a longer view, right? I mean, they're thinking yeah. about the company over. 10 20 30 years and what are the big things that could really impact materially impact their business and how do they respond to to those things so I, most of my clients i think are less concerned about the the micro and more concerned about the um, the macro
1: mm. okay that's so what would you say um, can you can you dig into that a little more like what what what, what do you mean by that when you say macro
0: well for Examples? example it, it, it seems like on a on a high level, you know, cyber criminal activity continues, um, you know, and there may be kind of these micro dips of, you know, uh, ransomware attacks are down for a bit, and then they pop up again at another time, and they may be down yes. again. But the overall trend is that we're continuing to see a steady flow of, you mm-hmm. know, cyber criminal activity, um, right? It's not necessarily here or there. And, you know, I would never want my client to kind of take their foot off the gas in terms of cyber defenses and cybersecurity because there's been a, a dip in, you know, ransomware activity over a short period of time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, um, it's interesting. Yeah. So if, if the insurers are taking that perspective, um, it almost feels like the insurers are not necessarily just watching, watching rates kind of bounce around. And, but, but I think it's, um,
0: it's well, a, it's a great on the other side too, you have to think that, you know, we think about something like property insurance, right? You have a hundred years of, you know, flood data or a thousand years yeah. of flood data or something like that, that you can base your actuarial projections on, um, you know, cyber claims data. I mean, you know, how, how long has that been collected and how reliably, and yeah. I know that over the last few years, there was a move by insurers to kind of create a central facility in, in the United States, at least to try to track Cyber you know, claims data on an aggregate level, and you see mm-hmm. brokers doing it. But you know, I, I think they're probably more reactionary because their their loss histories and the way that they're trying to underwrite, especially without standardization, probably causes them to be more uh, uh, susceptible and more concerned about the trends.
1: Yeah, that's um. Yeah, so it's funny. I was just thinking about this the other day. Is sort of some of the issues around. um, the data not having enough data and you know you have sort of different there's a lot of different data sources out there i guess but it, most people probably don't have the right data they don't have enough data um like from a statistical point of view and so you start thinking well what are the trends it's like well what are the trends that that company is seeing or what are the trends that that company is seeing even if you're a really good insurer you're probably still getting trends going to trends that are very specific to you you know it's not like a big you know, um, score sort of source of truth. And I think it makes it harder to draw like really big strategic inferences from whatever you see, um, at least in detail. Like, so kind of I it's probably difficult for somebody to follow, but like um if you're if you're kind of tracking everything at a really high level, it's easy to understand, right? They can just kind of say, Oh, well, these are like the high-level trends, and if that's enough for you. You know, you're fine. But kind of what you're talking about, you're looking at a small lens. So, you know, you're very tightly focused on something and it's wobbling all over the place. There's kind of maybe a middle ground that that data standardization could help with. Um, I'm not even sure if I'm following myself, but um,
0: it's. Well, and, uh, and again, I think they're, you know, so interesting. so with the caveat that we, we don't have the full picture, you know, you yeah. get information from you know, some of the brokers have reports that they'll put out. You'll get information yeah. from like the Mont Institute and some other bodies like that, um, that give you some semblance of the picture. But yeah, it's it's hard to see the whole picture.
1: I think my argument with some of those is I think I tend to absorb a lot of these. I read a lot of different sources and and even so because they're not this is this is I think where I was going with this before because they're not standardized they're not as they're not really big enough yeah. um if they're high level there's not enough detail that you can understand you can't really dig into it to gain some specific insights um i just think it makes it hard to get really useful stuff out of it like we track all sorts of data and and i think about okay um you know, what's the most useful things There's probably a couple interesting points that I get out of it, out of all the data we track. If we were 10 times larger, it probably wouldn't be that much more useful. Now, if we were a thousand times larger, maybe then we're starting to get into things you can do statistics on. Right. You can be an actuary.
0: I mean, some some of the statistics are helpful. I mean, I, I, you know, I was in a meeting yesterday and the clients were asking me some questions and I was able to point to, you know, we know, for example, that, you know, the. Um, business income losses in, out of a cyber event can be, you know, 10 X or more, you know, compared to yeah. expense and things like that. So yeah. I, I think some of the statistics can be helpful. It's just, um, the question is how much can you rely upon them and, and how yeah. far they they take you? And again, I, for, for, for my clients, which are mm-hmm. businesses that are just trying to continue doing whatever it is that they do that the high level macro trend is there's a dangerous threat environment out there. Yeah protected against those threats and right. cyber insurance being a tool to help you um, with kind of bottom line protection or financial protection against the impact of those events happening. Right. Yeah. And that, that that's really the key to me is number one, you know, uh, uh, they say what a, you know ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We always want folks to focus on security, but that backstop is where the cyber insurance becomes so valuable.
1: Yeah. Well, cool. Um, I guess just speaking of you know meeting with businesses and clients, what would you say are some ways that insurers and insureds could work better together?
0: Oh boy! I mean, I'm I'm, I'm uh, I've been beating the drum on this. I'm an evangelist for cooperation, um, and uh, you know, as I mentioned to you, I, I, I gave a whole talk on this in Chicago earlier yeah. this year. So I I, I kind of divided up into. Two areas. Um, I would say on the underwriting side, um, what's covered and what's not covered needs to be really clear. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the ambiguities are helpful to insurers when they're trying to dodge a claim payment. But that's not the kind of thing that engenders trust over the long run. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the rule of construction when you get into a litigation is, you know, the insurer wrote this and it's going to be construed against them and to the extent it's ambiguous you know it's going to be interpreted in the policyholders favor so um the insurer has a lot of incentive to try to clarify the language as much yeah. as possible um and and those you know clear wording helps both sides that's how you set expectations right. um mm-hmm. i also think that because so many of the disputes that i see involve quantum and business income loss disputes arising yeah. out of cyber um, I think it's really important to include claim prep coverage. You know, I know yeah. it's, it's not necessarily my money. It's often <laughs> so it's easy for me to say. <laughs> right. um, and it's often sublimited, but I do feel that the insurers get a tremendous benefit when they are the recipients of kind of the hard work of the insured and their accountants to figure out what the claim is, as opposed yeah. to having to kind of do it themselves or, you know, if the insured is not incentivized to bring in outside accountants, they may do the claim themselves, which may not be in kind of the format style way yeah. that insurers are used to receiving it. So I think while it could be a short-term cost, ultimately, it it makes the insured feel good. And I think it contributes to the efficient resolution of the claim. Um, Appraisal is another thing. Again, I see so many of these disputes and uh, being about quantum. Uh, you know, a mm-hmm. typical policy. If it's just a quantum dispute, you might have an appraisal mechanism, right? Okay. Something like that, uh, mediation provisions, things like that. That just I think kind of engender trust and you know say, hey, we're partners, and if something goes wrong, let's try to talk through it as opposed to forcing the policyholder to you know file a lawsuit. Um, and you know, the other thing on the on the underwriting side, to me, is about the application. The application if, if you go to a conference of CISOs and you say, What is the thing that bothers you most about your job right now? Um, sure, you know, pay and things like that might come up. But the the number one thing that I hear about is the application. And mm-hmm. these applications are so arduous and the wording of the questions can be so convoluted and so ambiguous. And you know, you're asking engineers basically to try to. Fill these out. Who are not necessarily lawyers, who may not necessarily understand the questions, and then we are starting to see more and more on the claim side, insurers looking back to the applications and trying to find ways out of a claim based on the application. So it's become such an important area, and it is so fraught with peril. And again, is a place where I would like to see, in the in the interest of cooperation, just clear questions. You know, if you have a six part yeah. question break it down into six parts. Don't, don't try to trick or confuse people. Um, if you're asking a really complicated question about a security system, don't force them to answer yes or no. I mean, there's there's so much nuance in there that it almost makes clients feel like someone's setting them up to be trapped. And yeah. they might not be wrong. So I, I think, again, coming back to my theme of engendering cooperation and trust, I think the application is another area where um, goodwill could be obtained through clearer, simpler questions. And right now um, it's just become so yeah. so complicated on the insured side. And, and not only that, but you're getting a you know a ransomware extension, you're getting a CCPA extension, you're getting a this extension, you're getting that extension. And it's going out and out and out and out and out. So um that that's another area on the pre-claim side where I think that there can be some cooperation.
1: Okay. Yeah, there's some um, gosh, I guess it was there was a lot there, a lot of ground you covered. Um would i think would what would, would you say that so we kind of maybe stepping back you were talking about claims prep and um maybe some of the benefits of that do you think when um like maybe what, what are some bad situations that you that you're able to talk about that you've seen coming out of somebody not having good claims prep and kind of going in and trying to get you know money back from on, on a claim based on maybe it wasn't done properly or whatnot. Like what are some bad situations you've seen from bad claims?
0: Bad situation. I mean, for the most part, most of my clients are going out and retaining, you know, consultants and and accountants because their claims are so convoluted and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's so much to do. And, you know, keep in mind that the clients here are the victims, right? I mean, you've just suffered. And and I want to come back to this talking about improvements on the claim side in a minute, but Okay. We just suffered from cybercrime, right? I mean, yeah. your company was the victim of a cyber attack, and like in a uh, thirty thousand foot level, you know, detached way of thinking about things, we were just talking about like claims reports and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. But those statistics involve real people, and the yeah. outages that they talk about are real outages, and people can lose their jobs. You know, businesses, can yeah. lose because of these incidents, and so. When you're going back to the client side, there may not be the capacity internally for the CFO or his, his or her team to start prepping an insurance claim, right? They may have to be figuring out how to pay lenders or how to deal with the bank now that they were out of business for two months and you're putting them through a claims process where they might not get paid for six months after that. So there could yeah. be cash So So um, right. it's 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 a real issue. And so I've, I've seen situations where even clients from sophisticated companies felt like we got to do this ourselves. And, you know, that has been hard for them because again, they're still dealing with the fallout of one of these attacks. So, you know, their bandwidth may be limited. So it may take longer, right. For them to put the the claim Mm -hmm. together. There may be some aspects because they're not, you know, professional claim preparers that they hadn't thought about in terms of extra expense or something like that. So, takes them a long time to put the claim together. They submit the claim, insurer hires their, you know, hired gun accountants. They come back with a list of 27 RFIs, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now this beleaguered, you know, accounting department was already understaffed and already, you know, spread thin. Now they have to yeah. respond to 27 requests for information. Well, guess what? Five years ago, you know, where the data you're looking for is from a legacy system that they no longer even use. So now they have yeah. to go back, to, you know, and and it just adds all of this time and complication. Yeah. You know, you know while I had one of those claims. It took almost two years to resolve. That I think with professional accountants probably could have gotten done in less than six months, maybe maybe okay. sooner, um, yeah. because they weren't even that divided on the math. It was just yeah. getting to the point of apples to apples comparisons where they mm-hmm. could talk about the numbers in a way yeah. that made everyone happy. So I, I think having the claim professionals in there early and and focused and getting a claim together quickly, that is comprehensive, that, you know, protects the bandwidth of the company and even allows them to recover from the incident, perhaps even faster. Um, that is worth it in my mind to the insurers to pay.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's, um, it's a great point. I like, I like the point a lot. I can really resonate with the point around speed of payment for sure. Um, you know, you've had a big loss, you you need that money to to cover it. And, um, you know, if you're having to cover it with with somebody else's money, basically, because you're waiting on this cash that you weren't that wasn't coming in because you were down. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely resonate. So you, you started you said you wanted to go back to you didn't want to lose the point around a good claims experience.
0: Yeah. So, so you know, I, I gave you kind of four points on on underwriting. Yeah. Uh, but I said four points on claims. The first one, which is related to what we just talked about, is. The insured who just suffered from a cyber attack is a victim. I mean, they are a victim of cybercrime. And I've I've heard of and seen a few situations where, um, you know, an adjuster took a very, I want to say nasty, but kind of rude tone with the insured, either on the accounting side, or on the IT side, you know, kind of almost, you know, oh, you guys screwed up or like, No, your business isn't as profitable as, you know, you're suggesting in kind of a a rude, detached way that didn't appreciate the fact that, as I said, I mean, people lose their jobs, right? I mean, if you're in the IT department and this thing just happened, like, you got to be sweating a little bit, right? You can't be feeling great about where you're sitting. You may have been working, you know, 25-hour days trying to keep the systems up and running, trying to figure out what's happening. Trying to give information to the you know forensic consultants and outside counsel, and just trying to keep everyone afloat and abreast. And then you get a call from an adjuster who's like, "Man, you guys really you know oh you didn't install that patch, um, uh, you know uh, what's wrong uh, with you?" Uh, kind um, of Monday morning quarterbacking, what? Yeah. You or you know, oh, you brought in that uh, that upgrade system. You like you know you weren't supposed to do that. It's like guys, yeah, like yeah. compassion, humanity here. Like this is not just. A statistic. These are people who actually are real people who suffered through an event that could have significant consequences for the business. I mean, I I was just with a client recently where you know no bonuses are going to be paid this year because the uh, you know the consequence of the financial event and the time lag before they potentially get any insurance recovery is such that you know it's not going to work with this fiscal year, and that's you know that's money in people's pockets that you know. If you're the secretary in the organization, or, you know, maybe if you're the CEO, it doesn't matter. But if you're anywhere else in the ladder, that's real money coming out of your pocket. So I think yeah. it's important just to keep in mind that, you know, even if you're jaded because you've been adjusting claims for 20 years and, you know, yeah. you, you, keep in mind the humanity, keep in mind the perspective.
1: The, the jaded's is a, a great point. I think you get every now and then you just get these obscene claims come in. And I don't know, maybe I get too emotional about stuff, but I certainly would be sometimes, they, you know, they come in and I still remember years later, certain claims and I still get so agitated. And I think it's important to remember that's like one out of a thousand or something, you know, most of the time, you
0: know, it also, you know, I, I'm trying to think about how do you kind of keep disputes to a minimum? How do you try yeah. to resolve issues before they blow up? Well, right. yelling at people or arguing with people or telling them that they screwed up is a good yeah. way to piss people off and not create goodwill. Right. right? So, right. so part of it is remembering that folks are victims. The other thing, which mm-hmm. is more on the claim prep side, kind of relating to some of the other stuff we talked about, is you have to really understand the business. I, I think that um, there is so much nuance, and the clients that I work with have big, sophisticated companies, but they might have. 10, 20 other you know, business lines within those companies. And when you're doing an analysis of the financial impact of you know being locked out of your system for a week, that can look very different for different component parts. So yeah. not only is it a good reason to have professional financial accountants involved, but it's also a reminder, I think, to the adjusters that you have to remember the business that you're working with and understand that you know one size doesn't fit all. Like just because there are two companies that both do something in technology services, one might have a business that is severely impacted by a ransomware event, whereas another might not. And, and that's mm-hmm. also true security systems and backups and all these other things. So again, I just think it's important to keep in mind, even if you're handling hundreds of claims that, you know, pause for a moment and consider the individual claim before you, as opposed to necessarily thinking about it on a systemic yeah. scale. Yeah. Uh, So that's an important one. I I think also um, I've noticed a trend where insurers will have outside counsel manage all of their cyber claims. And so for many of my clients, again, keep in mind, victim of an attack, everybody's upset, company's not going to do as well as it's supposed to, folks might get laid off. And the first communication that you receive from your insurer is a 15-page reservation of rights letter from, you know, we cheat him and how you know, fancy, yeah, law- yeah. fancy firm, and mm. you don't know what to do, right? Yeah, you're not a seasoned insurance professional, you're the CISO of this company, you're you know, the CFO of this company, and your for- first interaction with your insurer is a 15 page reservation of rights letter from a lawyer, right? Doesn't lead you to feel warm and fuzzy inside, um. <laughs> It's it's You're not collaborative it in
1: the, in the sense that um, people are already suspicious of insurers. I think pretty universally. Um, so um, yeah, you know they're, they're suspicious and then they don't understand what a reservation or rights letter is and and it's just um, yeah I, I yeah. And that's that how
0: I get involved is because yeah. my clients will say, hey, I just got this fifteen-page letter from a lawyer. Yeah. You're a lawyer in insurance. Can you tell me what is happening? And right. again, it's even very sophisticated business people. It's intimidating to get a 15 page letter from a lawyer. And, yeah. and even if it's, you know, cost savings to the insurer or whatever is leading them to do this, they have to understand that it has an impact, which is that it forces the client to lawyer up. And again, creates right. this sense of like, we're we're in an adversarial proceeding now.
1: Yeah. It's... um. Yeah, it's probably a. I have a lot of views on that that I probably won't talk about, and I'm not sure. It's it's a little bit on the edge of my experience. I I would end up talking a lot about. Yeah, I'll skip it. I'll skip that. But I agree with you on the collaboration part. Let me leave it at that.
0: And I would just add there that you know, again, I I don't work at an insurer, so I don't make the decisions. You know who they, how they handle their claims and whatnot, but I, I would think that. If your institutional policy is to use law firms to handle all of these matters, I think there needs to be some communication prior to that to at least even maybe perhaps the acknowledgement of the claim, just saying, hey, you know, our our policy is to use outside counsel to uh, manage these claims for us for whatever reason. Maybe we have so many we can't do it in house. Um, And so you're going to get a standard letter from a lawyer that explains the policy. You know, if you have right. any questions, you can reach out to me or, or something. Something to right. just lay the groundwork, you know, so that at least people understand, okay, I'm going to get a letter from a lawyer. And it doesn't mean the insurance company is trying to sue me or something.
1: Right. Or trying to trying to deny the claim. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I think, you know, just being collaborative on a claims process is really good for the insured is, or insurer, because you end up in a situation where, you know, the brokers will kind of see it, you know and and um, and they'll tend to know I, I think they'll tend to get a feeling for how good, you know, what a reputation is of different insurers in their claims process and how well it works and how collaborative they are. And I my personal view on that is that um the more the insurers engaged with the insured, like, The the less the claim is often going to cost you. Like you want them to engage with you as soon as possible. You want to work with them. You want to be a partner. Because on cyber, like on a lot of other lines, it's just like it's done, it's over, it's happened. But if you can convince someone to engage with their insurer right away and get that kind of really good collaboration, whether it's directly the insurer or, you know, the insurer kind of points appoints different panel members or, you know, connects you into different people. I think it it just works better for everyone in almost every case.
0: Yeah. And I think. And it may be counterintuitive, but I think the better the process for both sides, the cheaper it will be in terms of legal and yeah. other costs, the more efficient it will be in terms of resolving disputes, you know, fewer lawsuits, faster processing time, like there, there's so many benefits to, and I know people are like a lawyer is telling us not to you know go crazy, but I, yeah. I really do think especially for cyber claims, There is a a, a special handling that is required Mm -hmm. and that is necessary because of how devastating the attacks are on on these companies. Yeah. Yeah, that um, that makes a lot of sense. And I'll add one more thing too, again, putting myself in the insurer's shoes. I would bet too that if you have a good process, you are not only more likely to get that client coming back to you with renewals and, and in the future... But, you know, they they say this generally that, you know, if you do something good, people tell a certain number of people. And if you do something bad, they tell even more people. So, you know, reputationally and in terms of building a market, especially as the cyber market is newer, I think there are yeah. opportunities and it's really important to handle claims well and it will bode well in the future.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um. yeah, I guess just kind of on the, on the subject of uh, collaboration, is there anything else you want to add before we... We move on, or
0: no? I mean, I I I'm, I feel like I'm I'm beating a dead horse, but uh, yeah. it's a repetitive horse. So I
1: I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy the I enjoy the topic. I like um sort of. An well, insurer, you know, I'm always trying to think about
0: ways to do things better, whether it's yeah. in my life or in my work or in kind of more global processes. And and to me, this is something where seeing so many of these claims and seeing some of the same issues over and over again. You know yeah. that that's kind of led me to think about these things, and and by the way, it's not just you know me pontificating on high. I mean, these are you know that that presentation I did and and, and others that I've done. I'm always yeah. on a panel with insurer counsel, and you'd be surprised how often and on how many of these points we we agree. Yeah, um, or they say, yeah, we could absolutely do this better. Um, yeah, and so, again, I, I I say these all from practical, reasonable things that I, you know, I just came in here and I was like, yeah, just triple the limits and how, you know, cut the premium in half. Right. I mean, sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's easy to say, uh, But I think these right. are kind of real tangible things that can be done that okay. don't have to like, you know, tip the apple cart.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well um, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Um, I guess uh, shifting to another topic, uh, may, maybe a broader topic, like what kinds of things are you currently seeing just out there broadly in the market?
0: Well, you know, I I think we we talked a little bit about this with, you know, the prep, but um, so there's the systemic, you know, these, these systemic provisions that are trying to alter the nature of the cyber coverage. Um, Obviously the war exclusion is a hot topic. I know you've covered it before uh, on on your podcast and, and, you know, people keep talking about it. You know, Merck is kind of hanging out there. Um, We, you know, obviously have... uh, uh, Israel fighting with Hamas, and and there have been a number of cyber attacks, kind of connected to that. Uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, there have been a number of cyber attacks connected to that. Uh, all kinds of general hacktivism that you see in the world. So I, I think the um, the the scope of the war exclusion, questions of attribution, as was introduced by Lloyd's. Uh, we're seeing new exclusions coming to market, often involve concepts of attribution. I think that's kind of slowly being built into. Um, More and more exclusions. So um, you know there is a big trend on the uh, on the underwriting side of you know new exclusions and insurers looking for new ways to limit systemic risk. Um, I also think that you know privacy is obviously a hot topic. I believe you've you've also covered that one too. Yeah. But privacy liability and privacy risk. uh, I feel like every week in the United States, and we're running out of states, but every week it feels like there's a new statutory regime somewhere. Um, You know, and I think that the courts uh, in Illinois and the legislature in Illinois have kind of been going back and forth on how to interpret uh, um, BIPA and the scope of BIPA, right? And then you have like New York has its new biometric privacy law and the city has a privacy law. So um, there's just been this explosion of privacy risk to companies and, you know, watching the insurance markets and how they try to react to, to manage those risks. Um through you know through insurance and as well. so uh, those are the those are the big things that i'm I'm seeing on on that front and then on the claims front, you know, it continues to be fights about quantum. and I think there's really uh, challenging questions that I keep seeing over and over again, particularly relating to um, a loss and how the timetable of a loss. because what you sometimes see is that companies can recover, from a cyber attack in the short term but then the real impact of that attack might be felt a few weeks later or a month later and and you'll see a subsequent you know dip in sales or something like that or productivity mm-hmm. or something like that where where you know at first they were in kind of triage mode let's just try to keep our systems functioning and then they deal with all right well you know we had angry customers for three weeks who weren't able to get orders fulfilled. And so they stopped working with us, you know, immediately after the cyber event. Okay. You know, so, so those lost sales might not be felt till two months later. So, you know, you have kind of like a dip up and then a bigger dip. Yeah. And a lot of insurers are trying to draw a line in the sand at, after the first dip. Um, so I, I'm seeing a lot of fights about quantum on very similar fact patterns.
1: Cool. I guess we, so yeah, we've kind of, so just that you know you probably covered three or, or three or four different different topics there um but yeah it's um i think um you know yeah so sort of biometrics systemic risk and war exclusion um
0: and the, and the you know the
1: quantum issues the claims yeah disputes. quantum issues claims disputes. yep so cool yeah definitely definitely uh interesting stuff well we um I think we've kind of gotten through, you know, all the questions that I had, Um, you know, I usually like to ask a few closing questions before I jump to that. Is there anything else you think it'd be
0: interesting to, to talk about? I hope it was all interesting, but, uh, no, I don't. (laughs) Anything
1: (laughs) else. So it's a, it's an additional, an additional interesting thing, not the first interesting thing. You know, it's funny. People might not, I I guess, you know, we have a bunch of insurance geeks who kind of listen to this and watch it. I think for insurance geeks, it's all very interesting. Right. Um,
0: and that's what I surround myself with.
1: So, you know, (laughs) right. Like we might think it's interesting. Your mom telling you you're handsome, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, cool. All right. Well, let me let me jump into a few of my closing questions that I like to ask. How did you end up in this industry?
0: uh, Trial and error. I thought I was going to be uh, an election lawyer and uh, didn't love it and went through a bunch of different iterations, which landed me at a firm that did insurance coverage and uh, about Uh, Five or six years into that, we were inundated, uh, no pun intended, with um, uh, crime claims that were Mm. kind of business email compromise and things like that. uh, Just worked on a lot of those uh, probably early on in the life cycle of this when it was all about crime coverages. And then, um, you know, it's evolved as, you know, cyber specific forms have risen to prominence.
1: Yeah. Okay. cool. Um, Well, what would you recommend to anyone? who uh, would like to have a successful career in the industry?
0: Um, in my area, I think it's, you know, obviously you got to go to law school, but uh, I, I think beyond that, um, you know, try to find yourself a really good practice where not only do you have kind of insurance coverage, but you know, where possible mm. working with uh, data privacy and, you know, professionals who really understand security. Um, okay. I did a, you uh, a short—it wasn't a, a long course, but I did a, a like a couple months certificate course through Harvard on uh, risk, uh, on cyber risk specifically, yeah. and you know, learning about the differences between types of networks and all of the technical stuff. I think is really really helpful as a lawyer, so that you know, no one's expecting you to handle the technical aspects, but you need to understand. You know, if you're looking at a forensics report, you need to know what what it says to really advocate for your client.
1: Okay, great. That's, um, I guess, uh, one last question I'll ask then. Who should our, who should our next podcast guest be and why?
0: Um, I don't know if you know him, probably do, but I, I think Daniel Gary is one of the most fascinating people in kind of these worlds. Um, he's okay. a tech person who happened to go to law school and I think really does a great job navigating those worlds. He is also a neutral at jams. So okay. he will act as an arbitrator or a mediator in cyber disputes. So he sees a lot of the, the big ones and he gets brought in as a an expert um, by judges and courts to help navigate disputes, including some of the biggest privacy and cyber disputes that are out there. Um, I always like talking to him. Uh, okay. I think you'd find him very interesting. And he, he's at jams. He's also at his company called Law and Forensics.
1: Okay, yeah, it sounds sounds familiar. I'm not sure.
0: Going to be really annoying. He has uh, um, he runs something called the Journal of, of Cyber Law and Warfare, and he has a annual conference, I believe, at Columbia, like mid October okay. every year. Maybe you've heard of that. Um, and I've done some really interesting work with him. He's written a lot of articles about kind of war and cyber war and really working with, you know, people in the military and looking at international legal definitions and really trying to bring that all together, which I I think is, you know, again, as an insurance nerd, it is interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe just, um, if you could fire me over, you know, as LinkedIn or as contact details or whatever. Yeah. um,
0: Yeah. I'll definitely connect you guys. I'm just going
1: to make a note Yeah, Sounds good. Well, um, Cool. Well, it's uh, it's been a, a really great chat. It's been a, been a lot of fun and really interesting. Um, you know, so thanks thanks a lot for coming on the show.
0: Thanks for having me. I, I, I really, you made me think a lot. I think you asked some really good questions, and um, you know, I, again, I hope it's interesting to uh, folks beyond me and you.
1: Yeah, I, I think it will be. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks thanks a lot.
0: Thank you. Take care. If you want to learn more about our host Anthony or his company Asarius, visit asarius.com. A S C E R I S.com. Thanks to our friends at Sawu for producing this episode with us. See you next time.